Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Meet the New Church Historian. Today's date is August 27th, 2022. And today I'm going to be talking about the call of Elder Kyle S. McKay to be the new church historian. Elder Kyle S. McKay is of a special interest to me because he was my mission companion in Japan. In fact, he was my first missionary companion in Japan. He was my trainer missionary. And we were missionary companions back in the months of January and February of 1980 in a little town way up in the mountains of Japan called Fukuchiyama. But before I get to that, I would like to talk a little bit to my audience and give you a report on Sunstone, which I attended back at the end of July and where I present it as well, and then let you know a little bit about what's been going on with Radio Free Mormon since then. I was very happy to meet a number of old friends and make some new friends at Sunstone. One of my new friends that I was able to meet again there was Richard Dutcher, famous director, actor, writer, and film producer of such famous LDS films as God's Army, God's Army 2, and Brigham City. I am happy to report that Richard Dutcher has been gracious enough to agree to come on Mormonism Live in the next few weeks. We'll get him scheduled in, and we'll hear all about his past, his transition from Mormonism, and what very special project he is working on currently. I was also able to meet for the first time Cheryl Bruno, very, very well-known LDS scholar who has recently published a book on Mormonism and Masonry called Method Infinite. Cheryl Bruno has also agreed to come on Mormonism Live in the future when we will discuss her book. I have that book now ordered, waiting for it to arrive, and looking forward to reading it with great interest. I was also able to spend time with Randall Bell, former BYU professor Brian Hauglid, Anthony Miller, and also Steve Pinecker from Mormon Book Reviews. I cannot remember all the people I saw and met and spent time with, so if I have left anybody out, I hope no one will take it personally. As I say, I had a wonderful time, and I also presented the Radio Free Mormon Magic Show on Saturday afternoon, July 25th. I was slated for an hour and a half, and I had a lot of magic tricks ready to go. I only ended up performing around half of the magic tricks I had prepared for the occasion because we had so much fun talking about Mormonism and the ways that these different magic tricks and the principles behind them could help illuminate our understanding of Mormonism and Mormon history. Two things happened during the course of this 90-minute magic show that I want to bring up here because I thought they were very interesting, especially in retrospect. These were the two big failures in the magic show. The first failure I had was a DVD that I had brought down to Salt Lake City. And this DVD contained a magic show that I performed back in 1988 on New Year's Eve in the Stake Center at Austin, Texas. And the problem with this old technology that I brought down to Salt Lake City is that it could not be played for the audience in such a way that the audio could be heard. In other words, we could see the video, but the audio was not there. That was the first big failure. But I got over that by explaining to the audience what it was that was going on and trying to recreate it with my words describing what was going on in the otherwise soundless video. Without going into detail on that particular magic trick that was being performed by me back in 1988, the principle behind it was that if you tell an audience what it is they are going to see, they are more likely to see it. 
even if it's not really what they're seeing. In other words, believing is seeing. Now, of course, this usually only applies if what is being seen is quite similar to what it is that you are telling the audience they are going to see. And the reason I bring this up is because of how it interplays with the second big fail in my magic show. The second big magic fail was the last trick that I performed. And this was the trick that I've talked about before that I performed in Japan for Elder Green. And it has to do with having the spectator select a card, writing the name of the card on a piece of paper, burning the paper to ash, picking the ashes up and rubbing it across the bare forearm of my left arm. And then as I'm rubbing those ashes across my bare left forearm, the name of the card magically appears in the ashes on my arm. This was such a wonderful trick that I wanted to perform it for the audience at Sunstone. And indeed, I did. Only one problem. We got all the way through the trick up to the point where I had taken the ashes and was rubbing them across my arm. And I started noticing that the gimmick was not working. In other words, no name of the card was appearing in the ashes on my forearm. So I took some more ashes and rubbed them across my forearm, hoping that something would appear. Nothing appeared. As you can imagine, I was getting a little bit concerned. But fortunately, I already knew the name of the card because I had forced it on the spectator. It only appeared to be a free choice of a card that only the spectator and the audience knew. But of course, I knew what it was because I made the spectator pick that card in the first place. And the card, as I recall, was the Jack of Hearts. So I was able to look at this mess of ash on my arm and start pointing to a line and say, well, that looks like a J. That looks like a J. And over here, is that an H? Yes, it's the Jack of Hearts. Now, there really was no J and there really was no H because, as I say, the gimmick failed. But the mere fact that I was able to start talking about seeing a J in the ash. And also it helped that the audience was a little bit away from where I was located on the stage in the room where I was performing. So here I am pushing forward with a trick that is absolutely failing by pretending that I'm seeing something in the ash that I'm not seeing that is not there to be seen, but that really I should have no way of knowing, at least as far as the audience was concerned. I would have no way of knowing that the card selected was the Jack of Hearts. And because I saw, or should I say, I announced that I was seeing the Jack of Hearts on my arm, the rest of the audience believed that they saw it too. Or at least they believed that I saw it and went along with it. Because nobody came up to me afterward and said that they did not see the Jack of Hearts in the ashes. And there was a great deal of applause after the trick, which indicates to me that they went along with what I declared I was seeing on my arm. So here's the interesting part. The first fail has to do with me describing on that video how it is that I get people to believe what it is they're seeing, even though it's really not what they're seeing, simply because I'm telling them that they're seeing it. That's the first fail. And then about an hour later into the show, at the end of the presentation, I do a trick that fails and I manage to make it work by doing exactly what it was I told the audience that I was doing before, that I would tell them what it was that they were seeing and they would see it in spite of the fact that it wasn't really there. So it seems that this technique can be effective even after I've already told the audience about the technique and how it is performed. In retrospect, it was a very interesting psychological experiment and one which I think shows how deeply this idea goes 
that if a person who is perceived to be in authority claims they see something, the audience is more likely to see it as well, even though what it is the audience sees isn't really there at all. So having said that about Sunstone, I flew back from Utah on August 1st, and since that time, I have been encountering a number of setbacks and frustrations. The first having to do with my health. It seems that I brought back some kind of bug from Utah, which plagued me for several weeks after returning. On top of that, I have an issue with my left knee, which I finally gotten in to see a doctor about, and which has been diagnosed as bursitis. This has been bothering me since July 2nd, when I went on a hike up a mountain that seems to have caused this inflammation in my left knee. And I am continuing to limp about and try and work my way through the United States medical system to get a cortisone shot or some other treatment that will hopefully make it so my left knee is not a constant source of pain and distraction. And the good news is that I finally have an appointment for that cortisone shot. The bad news is that it is not until September 20th, more than three weeks in the future. So until then, I expect to continue to be in a good deal of pain and limping about. Now let me tell you a little bit about the technological issues I've been experiencing. Three weeks ago today, I came into the underground bunker to record a podcast. The podcast that I was recording was a follow-up to a Mormonism Live episode that we had done the Wednesday before. I worked on the podcast for a number of hours. I did a lot of editing and I did a lot of audio collecting. In other words, collecting audio bites from the internet, from church leaders in order to edit into the podcast. So the podcast was recorded. I was in the middle of editing it when all of a sudden, three weeks ago today, my computer crashed. I called up my computer technician, whose number I have on speed dial by now, and he was not able to help get my computer running. So he took the hard drive out of my computer and found out that it had become corrupted. So right now, the hard drive has been FedEx to a special location in California to a company that does nothing except retrieve data from corrupted hard drives. And I am hopeful that when it comes back, they will have been able to recover the data from my hard drive, including the almost completed podcast that I was working on three weeks ago. But by this point, I have gotten a new hard drive and I have downloaded the recording software again. So I'm up and running with making a new podcast, even though my old hard drive is still at the shop. So that's what's been going on here in Radio Free Mormon Land. It has been quite an exhausting August. And of course, in the middle of all this, I have been making sure to research, prepare, and show up for Mormonism Live every Wednesday evening at 6.20 Mountain Time. But I did want to talk about the calling of the new church historian in today's show. And once again, primarily because the new church historian is my old mission companion, Elder Kyle S. McKay. Listeners to Radio Free Mormon may recall that a couple of years ago, I commented on the fact that I was surprised to see that my old mission companion, Elder Kyle S. McKay, had been called as a General Authority 70. The announcement came in the church news, and I was first alerted to this when I was watching General Conference a couple of years ago, and I saw an individual speaking, and his name was Kyle S. McKay as it was displayed on the screen. I thought the name was familiar, and indeed it was. That was my old mission companion. And it was a source of contemplation for me that even though we had been mission companions in Japan, our paths had diverged significantly since that time. With Elder McKay's call to being the church historian, our paths 
continue to diverge. But I want to hasten to add here that I have nothing bad at all to say about Elder Kyle S. McKay. In fact, he was a remarkable missionary and a very remarkable person. If memory serves, he was the captain of his football team and the quarterback of his football team at Bountiful High School. And he was also the student body president in his senior year. He was the kind of guy that other guys want to be like and other girls want to be with. In fact, one of my favorite stories for my mission involves Elder McKay. I arrived in Japan in January of 1980, fresh from the MTC. We had our meeting at the mission home where transfers were arranged and all the new missionaries, including myself, received their first assignment and their first missionary companion. I remember catching the train for what turned out to be a very long train ride way up into the mountains of Japan. I remember looking out the windows of the train at night as we arrived in the small town of Fukuchiyama. Through the heavy snow that was falling, I could see the bright pink neon lights from the pachinko palaces that lined the street. After we arrived at the train station, we made our way to the new house. It was a house that stood separate and apart from other houses. It was not an apartment, as would be the case for most of the rest of my mission. But as I say, it was very cold out, and I was looking forward to getting into the warmth of the house. Unfortunately, I was not aware at that point that in Japan, at least in this city, and certainly in this house, there was no such thing as insulation. And not only that, there was no such thing in this house as central heating, not even a fireplace. With the result that the temperature inside the house was the exact same temperature as outside the house. In other words, really cold. In fact, sub-freezing. I still remember to this day having to undress that night to get ready for bed. And as I'm taking off my clothes already cold, I'm just getting colder and colder. And during this process, I remember distinctly a voice in my head screaming out, What are you doing here? That voice was so loud and so real that if it had said something that was faith-promoting, I would no doubt have attributed it to the Holy Ghost. And maybe in retrospect, that's exactly what it was. Regardless, I began to get into the swing of things. Elder McKay, as I say, was a very diligent missionary and also a really, really good senior companion. We would ride out on our bikes in the evenings to go tracting and then come back at 9 o'clock to the house. It was one evening at 9 o'clock when we were riding back to the house, we were riding rather quickly, Elder McKay and I, on our bicycles. It is possible that we rode back to our house more quickly at the end of the evening than we rode out at the beginning. But regardless, we're coming back, we're riding quickly, we're going somewhat downhill on this paved road. And coming up is a sharp right turn that we're going to need to take to get back to our apartment. At least I thought we would need to take this right turn to get back to our apartment. And there I've made the same mistake twice. It was not an apartment. It was our house that we were returning to on this cold winter night. Elder McKay apparently did not think that. And so he was planning on going straight as he rode on his bike down this road. The problem was is that when I took this sharp right turn, I not only took it unexpectedly, I was riding my bike on the left side of Elder McKay as he was riding his bike. I was on the left a little bit to the front of him and then I made this sharp right turn which ended up cutting him off abruptly. Elder McKay at that point had two options. He could either run directly into me and cause a crash or he could do something in order to try and avert disaster. 
Fortunately for me, he chose the second option. And all that I know is that I turned right in front of him, which was a bonehead move on my part. I readily admit it. And I wish it were the only boneheaded move I'd ever made. But I cut right in front of Elder McKay, and I hear his voice, not yelling, not screaming, but saying as calmly as a summer's morning, the words, Well, it looks like I better lay this puppy down. And then there was a huge crash of metal on concrete. And I turned around in time to see Elder McKay with his bike down on its side. He had laid it down flat on its side on the pavement as he was hurtling along and somehow managed to maneuver himself so that he was standing on top of the side of his bike like a surfboard as it skidded down the street. Oh, by the way, did I mention the, <laughs> by the way, did I mention that there was ice all over the road at the time? I don't think I mentioned that. Yeah, it was pretty perilous. So I cut right in front of him. He lays his bike down. He slides down the street for about a hundred yards after saying as calmly as could be imagined, well, I guess I better lay this puppy down. And then he took it all the way down and totally averted disaster. That was one of the coolest things I have ever seen in my entire life. And that is Elder Kyle S. McKay in a nutshell. So having said that, let's go to the announcement of Elder Kyle McKay to be the new church historian. Now he had been called to be a general authority 70, three or four years ago. And during that time, he's been working as an assistant in the church historian's office. It appears that that is his only experience with history in general or the history of the church specifically because we read about Kyle S. McKay on the church's website and we find out what his qualifications are to be the new church historian. And frankly, there doesn't seem to be a lot there that has anything to do with training in historical research or historical methodology. From the article about Elder Kyle S. McKay, Elder McKay was born on February 14, 1960 in Chicago, Illinois. So that makes him less than a month older than I am. He took a break from his studies at Brigham Young University in 1979 to serve a full-time mission in Kobe, Japan, which is, of course, where I met him. Shortly after returning from his mission to complete his degree in English... Elder McKay met Jennifer Stone, who had recently returned from the England-Bristol mission. She was also studying English. The two were married in the Oakland, California temple on June 12, 1984. So, Elder McKay's undergraduate degree was in English. It was not in history. I will say that it's interesting to me that Elder McKay studied English because I do remember that while we were companions, he quoted at least two different pieces that I remember. He was interested enough in poetry or literature to commit pieces to memory and then recite them. I remember that one of them was a poem that was for Mormons only. It was in one of those volumes called for, not, not for Mormons only, um, especially for Mormons. That's what it was called. It was in one of those volumes called Especially for Mormons that this appeared. And he had it memorized. It was called The Touch of the Master's Hand. And the amazing thing is, is that with the advent of the internet, I can look it up as I just did. This is how it went. The touch of the master's hand. T'was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two? Two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. 
Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What now am I bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow. One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. It's interesting that as I read that poem, which is the first time I've heard it since hearing Elder McKay recite it back in January of 1980 in Fukuchiyama, Japan, that it brings with it a flood of memories. But as I say, this is one of the poems that Elder McKay had committed to memory and which he would recite. So I can understand the connection and how it was that he was interested enough in English to major in it at BYU. But although I have a similar interest in English, in literature, in poetry, English is not really any kind of training to become a historian. But Elder McKay went on to get a graduate degree. Perhaps that's where he got his historical training. Let's go on with the article. Elder McKay graduated with a Juris Doctor degree in 1987, I think that would actually be 1989. There's conflicting information about that on the church website. But regardless, it was not a degree in history. It was a degree in law that Elder McKay received as his graduate degree from the J. Reuben Clark School of Law at BYU. So Elder McKay's training was not in history. It was in the law. Perhaps there was something with his career that he did that would qualify him to be the church historian. Let's go on. After graduating with his law degree, he immediately accepted a job with a large regional law firm in Portland, Oregon, USA. Okay, so that's not about history. Let's see if there's something else. He later returned to Utah to pursue an opportunity with another law firm before accepting a position with the Kroger Company. He worked as a vice president for both Smith's and Fry's, two Kroger divisions in Utah and Arizona from 2000 to 2017. Uh-oh. Well, it looks like Elder McKay received no formal training in history. He has no experience in his career in doing history. It appears that his training is in law, and he spent his entire career as a corporate attorney. Well, this is a strange thing indeed that we would have a person with no experience in history or doing history or researching history becoming the church historian. In fact, it is a lawyer who is the church historian. And he's not the first lawyer to be the church historian. In fact, we have a long series of the church calling lawyers to be the church 
historian. And the church historian is the person who is over, of course, the church history department. He's in charge of the church history department. Prior to Elder McKay, the church historian was Elder Legrand R. Curtis Jr., who was another attorney. Prior to Elder Curtis, Elder Snow was the church historian who was an attorney. And prior to Elder Snow, Elder Marlon Jensen was the church historian and he was, yes, you guessed it, another lawyer. There is a long series and a long practice and a long custom of the LDS church calling lawyers to serve as church historians, which is kind of a strange thing when you stop to think about it. In fact, in order to illustrate how odd this is, we know that the church not only has a church history department, we also know that the church has a legal department. It is sometimes called Curtin and McConkie. They are the church legal department. Now I ask, what sense would it make for the church to appoint a person who had never been a lawyer to be in charge of the church legal department? In fact, if the church took a person who had gone to school and been trained and graduated with a degree in history and had spent their entire life as a historian, would the church ever place a trained historian in charge of their legal department? Well, no, of course they wouldn't, and I'm not aware that they ever have. It wouldn't make any sense. What would a historian know about running a legal department? In the same way, we might ask the question, what does a lawyer know about running a history department? The answer is little to nothing. But then, is it possible that the purpose of the church history department is not to do history in the conventional sense? In other words, the point of the history department is not to research and find new elements and new aspects of church history and put that information in front of the public. It is possible that the church history department's job is to craft and present a faith-promoting version of church history and to keep all the troubling aspects of church history out of public view. That certainly has been what the church history department has done since its inception. And it appears to be what the church history department continues to do today. Now, I know that historians do a lot of different things and lawyers do a lot of different things. And I don't want to oversimplify things, but of course, I am a lawyer by trade. So I know a little bit about the subject and I'm going to say as a basic premise that on a fundamental level, historians find things. Lawyers, on the other hand, hide things. By which I mean, historians are out trying to find the truth about the past and to try and put it together as best they can from all the different evidence they are able to locate. The job of a historian is not to hide things, it's to find things and put things together in the most reasonable and responsible manner possible. To put all the chips out there on the table, to give their interpretation of those facts, and to let the reader decide whether she agrees or disagrees with the historian's interpretation of the facts, the main point being that all the facts are put out there. That is the historian's job. The historian's duty is to the facts. The historian's duty is to the truth. The historian's duty is to history. The historian's duty is not to any particular organization or belief system or religion. A lawyer, on the other hand, has a client, and the lawyer's duty is to that client. And if there is evidence that is damaging to the interests of the client, the lawyer's job is to the very best of his or her ability to keep that information quiet 
and to keep it out of public sight, and if it's already in public sight, to interpret it in such a way as to make it benefit the corporation or the institution that the lawyer represents. Historians sift through and present the evidence. Lawyers, on the other hand, represent a client. And the client that the church historian represents is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is interesting that this idea of a lawyer representing the church and a lawyer being the church historian was talked about as long ago as the early 1980s in Boyd K. Packer's famous talk, The Mantle is Far far greater than the intellect. This was reproduced in BYU Studies, Volume 21, Number 3, in 1981. And this is the talk where Boyd K. Packer makes it very, very clear, clear beyond dispute, in fact, that leaders of the church, himself included, are completely aware of historical information that is not faith-promoting about the LDS Church or about Joseph Smith and his prophetic claims. But that even though the leaders of the church are aware of this information, they are going to hide it and suppress it and intentionally keep it from coming to the attention of the members so that the members do not lose faith and potentially leave the church because of it. Not only does Elder Packer say this, he also, in his talk, which is to all the BYU teachers and professors and all the CES teachers, he lets them know that they are also to do likewise and to follow his counsel that they are not to repeat or present to their students or publish on any information that is not faith-promoting about the LDS Church and that if they fail to abide by his counsel, that they will likely lose their position in the church, they will be out of a job, and they'll probably be spending eternity in a very warm place. That is the sum and substance of Elder Boyd K. Packer's talk, The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. If you have not read it, I recommend it to you highly. In fact, the very first episode of Radio Free Mormon was an analysis of this talk. This is, of course, the talk from which the famous quote comes, Some things that are true are not very useful. But the part I want to talk about in this talk today is where Elder Boyd K. Packer likens the church historian to a lawyer because of the lawyer's duty to his client. Here it is on page 9 of the BYU Studies article. Suppose that a well-managed business corporation is threatened by takeover from another corporation. Suppose that the corporation bent on the takeover is determined to drain off all its assets and then dissolve this company. You can rest assured that the threatened company would hire legal counsel to protect itself. So here in his analogy, he's likening the church historian to legal counsel hired by a corporation, i.e. the church, to protect itself. It goes on. Can you imagine that attorney under contract to protect the company, having fixed in his mind that he must not really take sides, that he must be impartial? So you can see where Elder Boyd K. Packer is talking about the church historian, who as a historian, and it was Leonard Arrington at the time, of course, against whom he was anonymously railing, whose duty is to history. A historian's duty is not to an organization because a historian is not a lawyer. A lawyer's duty is to an organization and to represent them. Now he continues with his analogy. Can you imagine that attorney under contract to protect the company, having fixed in his mind that he must not really take sides, that he must be impartial? Suppose that when the records of the company he has been employed to protect are opened for him to prepare his brief, he collects evidence and passes 
some of it to the attorneys of the enemy company. His own firm may then be in great jeopardy because of his disloyal conduct. Now here what Elder Packer is complaining about is that Leonard Arrington had had the church archives open to him. He went into it to do research. He found things that were negative about the church and worked it into the history of things that were positive in order to give an unbiased, full, and balanced view. That's what Leonard Arrington was doing because he was a historian. That's how historians work. But Elder Packer doesn't want a historian in charge of the historian's office. He wants a lawyer in charge of the historian's office. And indeed, that's what the church has had pretty much ever since and continues to have today with the calling of Elder McKay, a lawyer, as the new church historian. Elder Packer concludes his analogy. Do you not recognize a breach of ethics or integrity or morality? You see, Elder Packer sees an honest and truthful historian as someone who has breached their ethics to the church, who have breached their integrity, who have even breached their morality. He then says, I think you can see the point I am making. Those of you who are employed by the church, and once again, he's talking to the church professors. He's talking to the church teachers. And by extension, he's also talking about the church historian. Those of you who are employed by the church have a special responsibility to build faith, not destroy it. If you do not do that, but in fact accommodate the enemy who is the destroyer of faith, you become in that sense a traitor to the cause you have made covenants to protect. So if you tell the negative truth about the church, you're a traitor to the church. If you tell the truth about the church, warts and all, you are a covenant breaker. Now, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish about the subject of history because I am aware that history can be written for different purposes. Two primary purposes, in fact. One is to recapture as accurately as possible what it is that actually transpired in the past. That's one way of looking at history, and that's frankly the way we tend to think of history in the 21st century. But there is another way of using history, and that is more of a propaganda ploy. And to use history in order to get people to do what it is you want them to do. In other words, to use history to get people to be quote-unquote virtuous. A number of years ago, I read the book, I, Claudius, by Robert Graves. And on pages 113 and 114, at least of the edition I read, there is a quote that describes these two kinds of history. Here's the quote. I see now, though I hadn't considered the matter before, that there are two different ways of writing history. One is to persuade men to virtue. So there's the propaganda version of history. We use history in order to get people to do what we want them to do. One is to persuade men to virtue, and the other is to compel men to truth. So the second one being an attempt to try and find out what really happened, or in other words, to compel men to truth. One is to persuade men to virtue, the other to compel men to truth. And it seems clear by this point that the LDS Church is using its history 
in order to compel its members, or at least try to persuade its members, to do what it is the church wants them to do. In other words, to give the faith-promoting version of history, as Elder Packer said, and to hide the non-faith-promoting version of church history, which is also what Elder Packer said. The problem that I have with the way the church presents its history is that it pretends it is presenting a history that accurately describes what really happened in the past when really what it's doing is using history for polemical and ideological purposes. In other words, to try and get people to join the church and once joined to keep them in the church and not leave. The remarkable thing is that in the article from the church news dated August 13th, 2022, announcing the appointment of Elder McKay to be the new church historian, Elder McKay actually admits that that is what he intends to do as the church historian. He is going to continue the practice that the church has established of hiding unsavory facts about church history from the membership as best as it can and telling them only the faith-promoting version. Quoting from the article, which itself quotes from Elder McKay, so these are Elder McKay's words. Since learning of this assignment, he says, which means I presume to be the church historian, since learning of this assignment, I have felt drawn to the rising generations and to protect them and to build their faith. Now, I want to focus on those words. To protect them, Elder McKay feels drawn to protect the rising generation of LDS youth. And he has felt this since learning of his assignment to be the church historian after having been assistant church historian for three years. This is a strange choice of words for a real historian to make. Elder McKay feels an urge or a need to protect young Mormons, and he feels this need to protect them in his role as church historian, which raises the question, why does the church historian feel that LDS church members need to be protected from their own history? Let me repeat that. Why does the church historian feel that LDS church members need to be protected from their own history? That is a question that could occupy us for some time, but at a minimum, I think we can understand that what Elder McKay is saying is that there are parts of church history of which he is aware that he feels the membership need to be protected from. And what does that look like? How do church historians protect the membership from their own history, or at least those parts that are not faith-promoting? Well, I think we know the answer to that. And Elder Packer was kind enough to tell us all about it back in his talk the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect. The significance, I think, of Elder McKay saying this upon his appointment to be the new church historian is that things really have not changed in the church historian's office in the past 40 years since Elder Packer gave that talk. The church historian and his office are still bent on protecting the membership from the history of the church. They are still going to cover things up that they feel are not faith-promoting, and they are still going to present the sanitized, correlated, whitewashed version of the history of the church. The church historian, and in this case, Elder McKay, as a lawyer, is not going to try and find out all the history and present it to the membership. Instead, he is going to represent his client, the corporation, the LDS Church, and do everything he can to present his client in the best light possible, which means that he will be hiding things as a lawyer, not finding things as a historian. 
To his credit, Elder McKay recognizes the fact that he is not trained as a historian when he says, quote, I'm called the church historian, but in truth, the real historians are the people I work with. I preside over a department that is full of absolutely brilliant people, he said. Well, I'm sure that there's a lot of truth to that and that they are brilliant. But the main distinction isn't whether they're brilliant. The main distinction is that he is a lawyer who presides over a department full of real historians. Later in the article, Elder McKay also talks about the flip side of the coin, the flip side of the hiding church history coin. In other words, the side of the history that they're going to promote, which is the faith-promoting side. Here's what he says. I believe that church history has the capacity to strengthen faith and ought to be used for that purpose, period, end of quote. So church history now becomes a tool. It becomes something that doesn't exist for the purpose of finding out as accurately as possible what happened in the past, but it is a tool to strengthen faith and ought to be used for that purpose, which once again means as clear as day to me, he's going to talk about and reveal and present faith-promoting aspects of church history while simultaneously covering up, hiding, and brushing under the rug those negative aspects of church history. Why? Because negative aspects of church history do not strengthen faith. Therefore, if Elder McKay believes that church history has the capacity to strengthen faith and ought to be used for that purpose, as he is quoted as saying in this article, we are led to conclude that he will hide negative aspects of church history that do not strengthen faith. He has as much as told us so in this article, which is another interesting point because sometimes if you actually listen closely to what church leaders say, they will tell you the truth. They will tell you what they're doing. They will tell you that they're hiding things from you and that they're not going to tell you the whole truth. And this is one such instance. What I want to do in closing out this episode is read some of the comments from listeners. I had posted this one quote by Elder McKay about protecting members of the church from its history on my Facebook page, and a number of listeners made comments, and some of them were really good comments, and I wanted to share some of those with you at the end of this episode. Larry Wayne Leach says, as someone who went to grad school to be trained as a historian, I'd like to offer my help to Kyle McKay if he needs some legal services. <laughs> now that I realize how interchangeable my skills are with his, it seems like the Christian thing to do. Beth Summerton Young says, So many red flags with this company man. Untrustworthy as a genuine historian if he's determined to not reveal hidden truths. And it's so condescending to members. Marcy King Swan writes, It would be quite a heavy task to keep the rising generation in the dark about the church's history, and I will do all I can to make sure he fails. Kevin Heaton writes, Imagine if he actually engaged as a historian, or at least as a leader of a department full of historians. Where would protection come in? That's a great question. What does protection have to do with writing history? Nothing if you're a historian. Everything if you're a lawyer. Sue Ann James Cooper writes, Classes are starting at the university next week. I'm not really feeling up to prepping lessons for my students. Maybe Kyle would like to fill in as the professor for managerial accounting and accounting information systems for a few weeks. 
I'm sure he'll do fine. <laughs> well, a great example of how training matters. Betty Tripp writes, Oh, I hope Elder Kyle McKay is an honest man. Waiting for it. Susan C. Groom writes, Protect or keep brainwashed? How do these folks sleep at night? Eric McGregor writes, So weird how all the historians are lawyers. Emily Harrison writes, Great question. Unfortunately for the church, the internet happened. People don't have to try very hard to find well-cited sources that tell the truth. Historians have to do all they can to whitewash the narrative. Kids at For Strength of Youth learned about multiple First Vision accounts this year, but they only taught them a whitewashed version with limited details to lead them to believe it isn't a problem. Kyle Tanuki Gray says, I bet you can't guess what his profession was. Professor of history? No. Historical consultant? Nope. Corporate lawyer? Of course. Jay Montgomery writes, and once again, a lawyer is chosen to be church historian. Why a lawyer versus an actual historian? Lawyers are architects and fabricators of word narratives. They know what to say, how to say it, and what to leave out to imply plausible denial and create the desired narrative, as well as the ready diatribe to critics. And William Charles writes, all the history that fits our highly controlled narrative. I want to thank my listeners for all their great comments to the question that I posed, which was, why does the church historian feel LDS church members need to be protected from their own history? And indeed, that is the question that I want to leave with you, my audience, this day. Why does the church historian feel LDS church members need to be protected from their own history? And is it reasonable for us to expect to get the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from a church historian who is bent and determined to protect us from those parts of church history that he does not feel are faith-promoting? And frankly, it's really not what he feels is faith-promoting. It's what his client, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, i.e. the Q15, i.e. church leaders feel, is faith-promoting because he is there to do their bidding, to follow his client's wishes, and to protect them and to represent them to the best of his ability, but as a lawyer, not as a historian. So in closing, I want to congratulate Elder McKay on coming this far in his career in the LDS Church. This is really a significant accomplishment on his part to be appointed church historian after becoming a general authority three years ago. I hope that Elder McKay is happy and fulfilled in the path that he has taken. I know that I certainly am happy and fulfilled in the path that I have taken, although those paths are not at all the same, even though they started from a common point in Japan. So I'll close out this podcast by reading The Road Not Taken by noted American poet Robert Frost, because I can't help thinking about this poem when I think about the different roads taken by Elder McKay and yours truly. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though, as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back.
I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere, ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. If you like what you hear at Radio Free Mormon and want to support the podcast, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org and make a contribution today. You can make a one-time contribution or a continuing contribution. $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. (laughs) 